parents, they say, listen, the only requirement we have is that it be semi-nutritious. The choice is yours. But the siblings continue to fight and argue and bicker and condemn one another because they want raisins or crunch berries or marshmallows or whatever. And suddenly in the middle of the grocery store, they break out into serial wars. We could laugh at that if it deals with cereal. But the problem is it doesn't end with cereal. When you talk about variety and you talk about what we are allowed to choose and the freedom that is ours, and the grace that is given. It's not simply true of our grocery stores and cereals. It's also true of another area of our lives. And like sibling children, too often it has devolved not into a celebration of variety, but of demandingness, and war. Now, I'm not talking about serial wars. If you haven't already figured it out, in the context of our series, I'm talking about the worship wars. When you come to God's word, one of the things that becomes very, very clear is that God's word allows great variety in worship. When you look at God's word and you look at the activities, and we're going to do that in just a few moments, and you look at the patterns, one of the things that you begin to notice, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, with all of the laws and all of the regulations for the the religious ceremonies they were involved in, God allowed variety. He allowed expression that was unique to a certain time or to a certain situation or to a certain aspect of the culture of the people of Israel at that time. And when you look at God's word, you see worship. And as you move into the New Testament, even more so, you see worship as a place of grace and variety. Too often, rather than being a place of variety and grace, it is a place of condemnation, of division, of condemnation. As we are moving into this whole idea of worship and we want to come to understand, one of the things that the elders did is we used a book by Alan Ross that's about yay thick which is a biblical theology of worship and starting from Genesis all the way through to Revelation 
the author takes those passages and he says, this is what God's word has to say about worship. And we're called upon to draw our understanding of worship, not out of our own preferences and not out of our own comfort, although I'm not condemning that. Unless it becomes a place of contention and division. We've defined worship as this. Worship is our God-honoring, spirit and power expressions. That's the activities of worship through word and deed of an inward response of our hearts, minds, and wills. That's the, the internal small S spirit. As we respond to what God has done in our lives, in the lives of our community, in the lives of others, through the demonstration of his word and the empowerment of his spirit, as it impacts our lives, we seek to express that. And all of it involves an encounter with God's self-revelation. This morning, what I want to focus on is this aspect It's how we honor God through spirit-empowered expressions of word and deed. What does God's word have to say about that? If you have that little card that's found inside your bulletin, that, that little one that we say is a representation of our vision, and you look on the front there and it says, living a life of worship together. And then it says, worshiping God in spirit, in truth, community, and the world. If you turn it over to the other side, where it says spirit, what do we mean by worshiping God in spirit? We talk about proclaiming the greatness of God in our corporate worship. And though there is implications about the message this morning that deals with our personal times of worship, because that involves activity, the focus is on when we get together. What do we do? How do we do this thing? And as we begin to look, what we see is that God's word declares variety. The first thing that we need to understand is that God's word is the source of our worship responses. How do we know what it is we're to be doing? How do we know what it is that is the activities that are to be a part of our worship? The answer is read God's word. And when you begin to read that, the expanse of opportunity is absolutely astounding. You can begin in Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation. And in there, you can begin to see how it is that God's people worshipped him. You can begin before our creation. You can go to Job and in chapter 38 in, in verse 7 and following that. Job talks about the fact that even before we were created, the angels were rejoicing. You can begin before the creation of man and you can go all the way through to eternity. We can understand the activities of worship by looking at what we're going to be doing forever. 
Revelation chapter 21 and 22 talk about the singing and the shouting and the rejoicing and the coming together and the throwing out of our crowns and gathering them back up again so we can throw them back out again. We can look at the Old Testament and see how God's people over and over again were involved in worship to God and involved things like sacrifice and involved things like priesthood and it involved things like temples and tabernacles. And we can look at the New Testament. See how those same words are used with slightly different meaning and the temple is no longer a building. It's our hearts and our lives as God takes dwelling within us. We can look at the priesthood and see it's not a group of people. It's all of us. It's all y'all. We are all a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people unto God. We can look at those things and say, how did they worship God? What did they do? And they sang and they prayed and they did all those kinds of things. They stood up and they knelt down. They, they, they prostrated themselves before God and they, they did all those kinds of things. But God's word says, you know what? Those are all available to us. We begin to understand what worship is all about by reading God's word. There was antithetical response, what Debbie did this morning. As she read and sang, not read, but sang a statement and we cried, He is. He is. It is. It is. See, we find God's word to be the source of what we do. We begin in Genesis. We go to Revelation. We begin at the very beginning of creation, even before man was created. And it says the angels sang out as God laid the foundations of the earth. And we end in Revelation when all, for all of eternity. By the way, heaven is not where we sit on clouds, play harps, and sing 24-7, even though there's not 24-7 because there's no time in eternity. But anyway... It's about our activity to God. It's an exciting place. Which at times God will suddenly do something and all of heaven will suddenly stop and sing and rejoice and celebrate. You look at worship through God's word. God's word provides a bounty of activities for worship. Beloved, we couldn't do them all. We couldn't fit them all in. As we were putting together, there is out in the back in the foyer a page that looks like this. It's several pages long. There's a condensed version of it. It is a concise theology of worship. It's only eight pages long. It could have been 300. But in there, there's a description of the activities. When you look at the Old and you look at the New Testament, when you look at the activities of Israel and you look at the activities of the church, when you look at the activities of the angels and you look at the activities we will be involved in through all of eternity, you see something like this. The activities of worship include such things as prayer, always. 
singing, almost always. The playing of instruments, almost always. Corporate and individual repentance. Shouts of celebration. Excuse me, Baptist, but dancing. Reenactments, by the way, you know, we are, our association is with Baptists. I can say that. Reenactments, giving, acts of commemoration and remembrance, the putting up of stones, the, 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 the declaring of stories, all those kinds of things. The proclamation of God's word through preaching and reading, responsive and corporate reading, doxological declarations, the sharing of stories that focus on the greatness of God, sacred meals, festivals, communion, baptism, symbolic action, vows, standing, kneeling, prostrating, processions, and many other activities that I couldn't list up there because I didn't have any more room. Get the sense of variety. And as a result of that, we need to understand that worship is a place of grace. It's a grace, it's a place of expression. It's a place of a word that we overuse in our society, diversity. We worship differently. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend an African-American church. I haven't been to an African-American church for a while. And I felt so much at home. In Louisiana, for 25 years, there's a greater expressiveness in the worship that existed there than what we tend to do up north. I heard shouts of amen and preach it. And I saw some responsiveness that I really enjoyed. Some of you may not. But there's variety. I've been in the cathedrals and stood there in the midst of awesome. And looked up 30, 40 feet to the vaulted ceilings and the stained glass and the incredible detail of the artist that could glorify and honor God. I've been in the simplicity of a service that was simply quiet and prayer. God allows us that variety. God encourages that variety. Do you know when we get to heaven, there will still be variety? Revelation declares that every tribe and every nation and every people will come to God with the uniqueness of their expression. I kind of think our robes will be different. But God loves that variety. But there is a standard. 
God says, you know, in the midst of this variety, like a parent that says, you know, you need to make sure it's some things here. You need to make sure it's nutritious. nutritious. There are some ways in which God says there are some basics. One of the ways that there's a basic is God's word provides a flexible pattern for worship. What is a worship gathering to look like? What is it to move through? What is it to, to get us to focus on? And when you begin to look at God's word, you see a couple of things. First of all, you see a pattern found in the covenant renewals of both the Old and New Testament. There are places, specifically in the Old Testament, there are the places of corporate worship that are unique in the Old and unique in the New Testament when the people of God got together and wanted to proclaim again the greatness of their God and even more so the relationship that they shared with God. And so they had these covenant renewals. Exodus chapter 19 through 24 as they first accept the covenant that God gave to Moses in the beginning of the, of the building of the tabernacle. And in those chapters, you see a pattern as God's people come together to worship God. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 1, as the people are entering into the, the new land after 40 years of wandering and after the time of conquest. And Joshua wants to make sure they understand the relationship and how to express that relationship and what they do and how they interact. There is a covenant renewal to remind them of the relationship and greatness of their God. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2. Solomon is dedicating and the temple is, or no, that's the, uh, the, the tabernacle. I mean, the temple, I'm sorry. It's being celebrated and rejoiced. There's a covenant renewal. In 2 Chronicles 29, when Hezekiah is cleansing the temple and restoring worship again, there's a covenant renewal. Nehemiah 8, the passage that Jim read this morning, is a covenant renewal. Did you see the things that were in there? They shouted amen. They were quiet. They heard the preaching of God's word. They went home and they celebrated. They had a meal together. There were all these elements of a way to worship and rejoice in the newness of this covenant. There's another covenant renewal we know very well. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this this bread symbolizes who I am. He goes on to say, and Paul says, and after supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the what? New covenant. It's a covenant renewal. And he ends up by saying, go and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when you begin to look through that, you begin to see 
kind of a flexible pattern. Not every covenant renewal had every one of these parts to it. But when you put them all together, you end up with a flexibility of sort of these general themes, these general activities. The pattern involves preparation. Preparation of the Levites, preparation of the priests, preparation of the people. As they prepared to come and focus their attention upon the greatness of God and on the wonder of the relationship they share with Him. There was confession. 1 Corinthians 11, as we go through that passage, it says that we should examine ourselves to make sure that as we're partaking of these elements, we do it in a way that is worshipful, that represents the body of Christ. There is focused sharing. Sometimes it's a multitude of people. Sometimes it's just one. I love Nehemiah chapter 8. Go home and read it where it says that Ezra stood up and he began to read the scriptures. And as he was reading it, the Levites came together and I left the names out just to spare Jim from having to read all those names and to be able to kind of shorten it a little bit in terms of reading. Yeah, Jim said thank you. But when you read that, what happened was Ezra read the scriptures and the Levites would go around and they'd explain it to them. Why? Because they had been away from it so long they needed to have it explained. There's sacrifice. The Old Testament involved animals. In the New Testament, it's a sacrifice of praise. And the sacrifice of our will as we become living sacrifices. There's participation. Beloved, they even yelled, are you ready? Amen. Twice. They responded. They got involved. They were moved. And then there's proclamation, meaning they went out and they demonstrated it. Now, not every covenant renewal has every one of those aspects. But when you put them together and you see them overlapping, you see that our worship is to involve preparation and confession, focus sharing, sacrifice, participation and proclamation. It moves from the mundane and the normal. The activities of our lives. I was listening to a, a, a tape by um, oh, Trip, um, Paul Tripp, yeah. And uh, he was saying, and they asked the, in the question, what do you believe is the number one struggle in the evangelical church today? And his answer was amazing. He said, busyness. See, as we get together to worship, we put that aside. In our affirmation, we talked about putting aside the the activities of our day so we can focus on God. Worship begins by changing our focus so that we begin to focus on God. We begin to focus on His greatness. And then as it moves on, it moves us back out into the mundane 
and daily as we choose to take the proclamation and the greatness of our God and the relationship that we share and make it a way of living. Even in the pattern itself, there is variety. Beloved, when we come together to worship the Lord, let's take some time, whether it's at home, and if you have children, that may be an impossibility. Or whether it's during those first choruses. Or whether it's, you know, just a time of quietness where we say, you know what, Lord, let me focus on you. Let me not worry about the project at work. Let me not worry about the, the, the difficulty that is going on in our family for a few moments. Let me not worry about the bills that are unpaid. Father, let me just focus upon you and the greatness of who you are and let me proclaim and declare that through my singing, through my prayers, through my shouts, through my amens. Through my, I know this is uncomfortable, raising of my hands. I didn't put that in the list. God, let me focus on you. And then as we focus on God and are reminded of his greatness, we take that and we move back out into the world to live a life. God provides us with a pattern and we encourage the worship team as you watch what they do, they try to work through that pattern. They try to move us to where we're focusing on God and then encourage us to take that out as we move into the world. But finally, God's word provides a clear standard for evaluating our worship activities. The standard is not preference. The standard is not comfortable. Now again, I'm not condemning that. There are songs that I like more than others. There are times that I love to go. I can remember when I was in seminary at Grace and there would be 750 people gathered together and they would be singing, you know, and can it be, or things like that. And the sense of God's presence was overwhelming. I mentioned it often because it had such an impact in my life. I remember gathering with 80,000 men at a Promise Keepers in Dallas, Texas, and we started to sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty. Acapella. And I started weeping. But I also love to hear choruses. We evaluate based on not our likes and our preferences. Rather, the standard by which we say that was a good worship service, I think are primarily these two things. There may be others. But one, does it accurately reflect the character of God? Does how we just worshiped, the activities that we were involved in, does it reflect God's character? Is he evident in the way we just worshiped? 
I will tell you, if in worship you are texting on your cell phone, I'm not sure that reflects the character of God. I know, I just started meddling. If there is division in the body and we're angry at one another because, I can't believe we're worshiping that chorus again. Those are our attitudes. That does not reflect God. As Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth, notice what he says. As he talks about their gathering, they would come together and it become mayhem. People were shouting and screaming and yelling and there was no order. There was no sense of direction. People were talking over one another. They were, they were ignoring one another. They were doing all kinds of things. And Paul says, for you, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to control of the prophets. In other words, don't say, the spirit put me out of control. I had no control. Paul says, ah. You can always control yourself. I've been to services where it got so wild that, and the women were rolling around on the on the on the floor that they had sacred blankets that they'd have to throw over them so that there would be decency. I'm sorry. That does not reflect a God of order. But notice what he says. Why is there a problem at Corinth? You see it right there. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In another passage that I didn't put up because I just didn't have room this morning, you can read in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 22. They were gathering together for their agape suppers. Their love suppers. And Paul says such devastating words. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you are eating. You say it is, but it's not. Why? Because it didn't reflect the character and truth of God. He went on to say, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Where's the unity? Where's the body? It doesn't reflect the character of God. That's the first standard. Now, what reflects this, the character of God may always may not be what I'm comfortable with. I remember going to a youth gathering. Their part of their worship was pyrotechnics. It fit in so cool. We were talking about the awesomeness of God, and all of a sudden, boom! That was cool. Some would say pyrotechnics have no place. Why? 
They also had about a 10,000 watt subwoofer. I wasn't comfortable with that. But there's a way of praising God that really struck Lazuna. It didn't violate the character of God. The other standard is this. Does it accurately proclaim the truth of the new covenant? We try to make everything we do reflect the truth of a new covenant, New Testament life. Now, some may choose to do it differently. But at Grace, we choose to be casual. If you want to wear a suit and tie, fine, go right ahead. Why do we do that? The reason we do that is because God calls us to come to him how? As we are. We don't have to put things on to come to God. So we choose to be casual. Others may choose to be formal, saying, I seek to, to try to bring something that is unique and special and set aside the day out of my normal. Okay. But just make sure you understand why you're doing what you're doing. One of the most important things about worship is we understand why we do it. Because otherwise, it simply becomes ritual. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do communion? Why do we do baptism? Why do we do singing? Why do we put the announcements at the beginning? Why do we not just tack on communion at the end of our service? There are reasons for all of those things. And others may do it differently. But as a way to communicate what we believe is New Testament truth. Why are we not a great cathedral? Again, I don't condemn that. There are ways to express God's awe and wonder that exists <coughs> in a cathedral that doesn't in an auditorium. But the reason we do that is because we believe that God's presence is not found in a building. It's found where? In the people. And so we ask the question, does it accurately proclaim the truth of God's new covenant? Paul in Colossians, he also does this in Ephesians, says to the people, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether it is in word and deed, do it in a way that reflects the truth of Christ. And so when you look at that, you see what Paul is saying. Our worship needs to reflect the reality of a resurrected Christ and an indwelling Holy Spirit and a relationship with the Father where we are his children and the fact that we are all a priesthood. We are all a royal nation. We are all a people of God. And we need to make sure that what we do in worship proclaims God's truth. 
gives the message. And so maybe we'll do the Apostles' Creed sometime. Why? Because it's a way of proclaiming the truth of God. Maybe we'll do antithetical songs. Why? Because it's a way of proclaiming the truth of God. Will we bring in animals and and sheep and slaughter them up front? No. Why? Because that's done away with. But will we bring our sacrifices of praise? Will we bring our lives as a sacrifice to him? When we take communion and that covenant renewal, you proclaim the Lord's death focused on the new covenant until he comes and things change again. Beloved, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear these things. First of all, that worship involves variety. And we judge that variety not on the basis of of comfort and preference, but on the basis of whether or not it reflects the truth of God in his character and in our relationship with him. Father, thank you for worship. Thank you that we are allowed to be people of worship. And Father, may we truly be those that examine our worship, examine ourselves, and to be certain that it takes place in a way that brings you honor and glory, that represents your character, and proclaims your truth. Father, let us enjoy the variety that you've given us to experience. For your glory and your honor. And in the name of your Son, we pray.